0: Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 349. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry.
1: Hello, Valerie. So great to see you again.
0: It's good to see you. We have a great show. We're going to cover, can people with sensitive skin use retinol and vitamin C products?
1: You mean like orange juice?
0: <laughs> I think that's drinking. All oh, right, right. Are there different <laughs> are there different percentages allowed for body products as opposed to facial products? What skincare products should be avoided when using hypochlorous acid? Are there any at-home hair products that may interfere or damage my hair if combined with professional hair coloring? And Would using salicylic acid shampoo daily cause any harm, either to hair or scalp? But first, chit-chat.
1: Well, Valerie, uh, how's it going? I mean, uh, you're new to Texas. You're enjoying the Texan weather there. (laughs) How's how's Texas now?
0: I'm very new. So if you listened to the show last week, you'll know that I moved to Texas, and we recorded basically on my first day here. I was only here for a couple days before we went to New Hampshire, for Thanksgiving, oh. visited family and then I came back. So really, was
1: it near Lake Winnis- Winnipesaukee?
0: <laughs> near Lake Winnisquam actually.
1: Oh, okay. That's uh, but the one I <laughs> yeah, said is that was the lake this you're talking lake, about. Right? Yeah, no, that's oh. no, it's a, it's uh, some big lake there in New Hampshire. Oh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's there. <laughs> so you were in New Hampshire.
0: I was in New Hampshire and I just got back to Texas this week. So I'd like to say this is really my first week living here. Right. I'm still not used to central time. I probably won't be because I have to go to Maryland for work next week and New York City the next for work. Uh. So, yeah, I'll be messed up on that end. Uh, but, it, yeah, it is cold here. And by cold, I mean like 50, 55. So that's
1: colder than L.A. like.
0: Oh, for sure. It feels chillier, and it's much colder in the morning. Oh. Where I lived I in L.A., it was at the very corner of the valley, and so we got really extreme summer and really extreme okay. win- winter temperatures, but it is still just colder feeling here. I don't know how ah, to explain right. it. Yeah, it's
1: just less moisture. I think it's like a desert there, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. The humidity is difficult to get used to, that's for sure. Uh, ah. But the other thing is the bugs. Oh, man.
1: A lot of bugs, huh?
0: There, Yeah, in LA, we hardly had any. Here, That you can't even leave a window open for two seconds without bugs wanting to come in. And the bugs are big. So I've had a bit of a hectic week already. So we moved my lab. Uh, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist actually moved to Texas three months ago. My lab just moved last week. And uh, the moving truck came Monday, but the floors had to be redone in the facility. Um, And so everything is just kind of sitting in the parking lot in a pod Oh, and the floor people have had a bit of a headache because the, it didn't get to cure overnight like they thought it would because we had an uh, extreme cold uh, freeze uh, last night and my heating system, for some reason, didn't kick on. So that was a big huh. problem. And then once we got the heating system to work, a bunch of wasps came flying out of the HVAC system. What? <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. And so these wasps were flying around, big brown things. And they were landing on the sticky epoxy. <laughs> so Oh no. There are all these wasps everywhere. They can't get the floor done on time. The Exterminator oh, can't come because they have to get the uh, you know, finish the floor. It's a huge nightmare.
1: Oh, wow. Now, it's, it's cold there. Like wasps are still uh, active. <laughs>
0: I was surprised, uh, Hmm. but apparently they're active when you turn the heating system on, and they don't like to be in there when that's on. So they wake up, and they come flying all over your facility and stick to the sticky epoxy floor.
1: You know, that reminds me of an insect-catching trick that I used to do. I used to have these frogs, so I'd want to catch some flies... And so uh-huh. I would take a plastic bag, and I had a dog, and the dog would go to the bathroom outside, and the flies would get on it. It's in the summer,
0: oh, of course. Oh, my. I know where this is going. I'd
1: take a plastic bag, and I would put it just, <laughs> just to hover above the pile, and then you could make a noise, and flies, they fly up. So they would all yeah. fly up into this bag, and I'd catch them in the bag. And then I would put them... Now, they're just buzzing around. You can't put them in with your frog then. So I put them in the freezer, and then they would all freeze, and then they'd pass out. And then I would just sort of dump the bag into it with the uh, the frog, and then as they warmed up, they all came back to life. And the
0: frog could snatch them.
1: Oh, the frog! Was, the frog was feasting. So that's feasting can...
0: on feasting on feces flies.
1: <laughs> well, you know, flies are all feces, right?
0: <laughs> that's what they do. Yeah. Oh my goodness.
1: Speaking of feces, you know, kittens make a lot of it. <laughs> Let me tell you.
0: Oh, I bet I saw Stash the lab cat. Yeah, um, you know, using in the it? bathroom right in my parking lot, and I was like, "Hello, oh, that's a rude stash."
1: That, that is. Well, the the kittens that in my basement are they've got they've got a new home, so I, I still have them, but I've got a place that's going to take them and get them adopted out. So, yay!
0: Oh, that's great.
1: And I think my sister might take the mom because she can oh, have that's an extra. She, she can have one more cat. So yeah, everybody oh. ends up happy.
0: Well, hopefully, the cat is happy. I think some cats yeah. like to be outside.
1: Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I think she's starting to enjoy the in, inside. So, so we'll see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she's enjoying the royal canine for cats.
1: <laughs> exactly. All right, shall we move on to some beauty news?
0: Let's head over there. What'd you see this week?
1: You know, I saw this article just browsing the internet. I get these alerts anytime there's a story about cosmetics. And there was one, this this stunning headline said, Most Americans don't know about PFASs. PFAS is the polyfluoral alkyl substance.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> sure. Yeah. And they, I mean, the headlines seem very shocked that people didn't know about it, and it said from the study, they found that 45% had never heard of Forever Chemicals, while 316 had heard of the PFAS, but they had no knowledge of what they were. Most respondents said, like, 97% did not believe PFASs impacted their drinking water, and just 11% knew that their community had experienced PFAS exposure. So... I wonder,
0: Americans.
1: Yeah, but I, mean, I think this was all over. But first of all, uh, should people know about PFASs? <laughs> it's like,
0: well, I'll tell you what category I would have fallen into as yeah. a cosmetic chemist, and I actually have worked with some alkanated ingredients. I would have fallen into the thirty-one point six percent. Where I've heard of them, but I didn't really have any knowledge of what they were in a broader sense and how they impacted us or the environment. If I were not a cosmetic chemist, I probably would be in the 45.1%. I don't think it's realistic to expect someone to know what a PFAS is.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're sort of exposed to them at all just because, you know, we're in the industry, and there are a couple of products that use these. Uh, They help uh, keep mascaras on, you know, they make longer-lasting makeup, I guess.
0: Also, those fun Korean bubbling masks, those also contain those types of compounds.
1: Oh, there you go. So that's kind of why we know about it, but I, I hadn't even thought about going in water, but... You know, it did, this doesn't say anything about what is the danger of these things. And expecting consumers to know about these ingredients with unknown hazards, it, shouldn't we just figure that the people who are responsible for chemical safety have sort of already taken into account the exposures and all that stuff? I don't know. Maybe I'm too. Uh, I think.
0: Well, I think out of anyone, those are the people that need to know about them and what they do, and they need to help the people who don't know make the best decisions about them, right? I wouldn't expect you to know everything there is about every fluid used in a car, right? But we would hope that your mechanic would or the person designing these automobile fluids.
1: Or even should consumers even have to know about every chemical that's in the water they're drinking? I mean, we shouldn't we just be able to go to a tap and say, "Uh, I have confidence that there's somebody checking on this stuff and it's not going to kill me.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, water, uh, you know, after drinking L.A. tap water, I'm like, yeah, you probably should know what's in your tap water. But I totally get what you're understanding. There has to be not everyone can know about everything. Right. We go through this argument when people say every little tiny chemical component in fragrance should be listed on an ingredient list. It's like, well, how would that make anyone more empowered, right? Uh, you know, right. If it wouldn't. It would just be a list of really long chemical names that you don't know what they are and what they do. So, on the other hand, you know, I could say or see where it, it doesn't make sense for everyone to know about everything.
1: Yeah, I just think it creates anxiety for people like, oh, I'm afraid to drink my tap water. Because of this unknown chemical. I think there's 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 probably a lot more unknown chemicals in the tap water. And and unless you're in the water purification industry, uh, that you probably don't know about or or even need to know about, right? I don't know. I guess I'm saying for me, ignorance is a little bit bliss. (laughs) Knowledge can make Sometimes it is, yeah. (laughs) But
0: also, I would like to say, I don't like how they pointed out It's about Americans, because I bet we could go into Canada, we could go to Mexico, we could go to maybe Iceland. I'm not picking on anybody, and I'm just saying a majority of the population probably wouldn't know about this.
1: Yeah, it's not uh, a topic that people are clamoring to learn about.
0: (laughs) Over Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs)
1: Right. I'd like to see that argument over Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> there would be crickets around the table. They would be like, you weirdo, go back to the children's table.
1: Well, it, it does always amaze me the that people have very strong opinions about topics that they know nothing about, and then they don't have any strong opinions about topics which, you know, might actually be relevant in their life, but it's too complicated.
0: <laughs> well, it certainly doesn't grab a headline, that's for it, sure.
1: It does not.
0: Well, let's answer some beauty science questions. We have quite a bit today.
1: Yeah. First one comes to us from Morgan, and let's hear Morgan's question. Hi, Brains. It's Morgan, and I have a skincare question. Is it possible for sensitive skin to get on a retinol and vitamin C regimen? Also, is medical-grade skincare products better than over-the-counter skincare products? Also... I have been having some itching and irritation on my face and body for years, and lately I've done some reading and I think it's my moisture barrier is damaged because my skin feels itchy, tight, irritated, and dry, and just damaged. And I think it's because of the way that I'm showering and how long I'm in there, and because I'm using water that's too hot or something. And now that it's gotten to be winter, it's gotten worse. Uh you know I just wanted your opinion on this matter. I know you're not a dermatologist, but I just wanted an opinion. Thanks. Well, it is true we're not dermatologists. Uh, unless you did you get a degree anytime? <laughs> no. And you moved to uh, no, LA to I, Texas you are like
0: <laughs> not a dermatologist. But I think we do know a lot about how products impact skin. So I think that's worth something.
1: All right, let's see about the question. So, is it possible for sensitive skin to use retinol and vitamin C also?
0: Yeah, it's pretty common in literature. And by literature, I mean online web pages. I don't know if we could count that as literature, but we see a lot of people say
1: <laughs> it's a digital literature. You see? Dig- yeah, digital literature. Yeah. yeah,
0: basically on TikTok. And so right. people will <laughs> <Or> say. <blogs. laughs> Yeah. Do not use retinol and vitamin C together, whether or not you have sensitive skin. It it doesn't matter, but don't use them together because it can be too irritating. And while I think sometimes this can be true when we're talking about vitamin C in that aspect, it's those 15% vitamin C serums that have ascorbic acid in them that are Mm -hmm. an extremely low pH. Those can be very, very irritating and stinging to the skin. But if you have a product that has vitamin C in it or maybe it's a vitamin C ester like tetrahexyl ascorbate or sodium ascorbyl phosphate, those tend to be a lot milder. The pH those products are in is not as low as a ascorbic acid serum. And so I think in those instances, you can have some interaction, but there's not a mechanism where they're canceling each other out or creating a dangerous compound together. I think it really is a ascorbic acid serums can be irritating on skin retinol can be irritating on skin so don't use them together i think it's more of that
1: i think it's right a more personal experiment too because some people will be sensitive to just a little bit other people could use a whole lot and not notice anything at all the other thing i would add is a lot of uh, retinol and vitamin C products you're using, you know, they aren't properly stabilized on the market and all this stuff has been oxidized anyway. And so it's not, it's not really going to have a big impact. Uh, and it's just kind of a claims ingredient. So (laughs) you don't know who you're buying. I mean, if you're buying from a, a bigger company and, or a more established brand, you could have confidence that they've tried to stabilize these things, but, but even that it's, it's hard to. And so if, you might not even be getting the ingredients that you think you're getting.
0: Yeah. So I would just experiment and see what works for you.
1: Sure. Now this idea of medical grade, we talked about this in previous shows. Um, not sure the numbers, but what what do we have to say about medical grade skincare? Better than over the counter stuff?
0: Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. That's really <laughs> just a marketing gimmick. You know, there's no such thing as medical grade ingredients, Uh, There is pharmaceutical grade ingredients, however, uh, and that just has to do with their production standards, uh, meeting a certain specification. So for example, uh, glycerin, propylene glycol, citric acid, sodium hydroxide, niacinamide, these would be uh, uh, pharmaceutical grades, a USP grade, because they meet a specific standard and manufacturing process. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're superior to, let's say, an FCC or food grade.
1: Right. It's just a matter of what residual ingredients are in there. It's still propylene glycol, whether it's cosmetic grade or pharmaceutical grade. Actually, typically, those are going to be the same because they're topically applied things. So it's just easier to just make them the same. It's not like you can get a big cost savings if you, you use the inferior <laughs> standards or something.
0: Exactly. So I would say don't worry about medical grade. In fact, not just don't worry, ignore any claims to medical grade skincare and just enjoy using the products that you enjoy using no matter yeah. where you get them.
1: Yeah, total, total marketing story there.
0: Perry, what do you think about the itching and irritation on her face and body?
1: She thinks it's caused by showering too much. Uh, i I mean that that's a possibility, but it's it also is possible that someone just notices it more or something. I, I like I mean, I guess in the wintertime, my skin probably feels tighter and dry, but i I just don't really notice it. <laughs> you know? I'm just, yeah
0: I would say if you're feeling itchy, tight, irritated, dry. You probably need to look at your moisturization. Right. You know, what are you using for a moisturizer? Is it appropriate for your skin? Do you need to change the products you're using? Change your routine? When you shower too hot, that can be, you know, hard on your body skin and you can get drier, but that should normalize uh, when humidity increases in the air. So I don't know if it's that. I honestly would probably check your laundry detergent and see maybe if you're not having some adverse reaction to fragrances that cling uh, to the fabrics or even possible. certain fabrics that can irritate your skin.
1: But I wouldn't think this is the idea of uh, that her moisture barrier is damaged. Uh, you know, your moisture barrier is, you have the natural moisturizing factor and your skin is pretty much going to produce that. And unless you're uh, using a lot of soaps all the time, uh, it pretty much will recover after a few hours. So I think your idea that it's maybe more related to something in their detergent or fragrance exposure, it's a chemical exposure. It's more likely than the moisture barrier is like permanently damaged or something.
0: Yeah. So I would look at switching some of those things up and seeing if your body skin improves or even your facial skin try changing your moisturizer it may not be occlusive enough or it may not be um you know or maybe it's too occlusive or maybe you're not exfoliating enough or yeah. maybe you're over exfoliating it could be a lot of things so i would look at that
1: absolutely and look at that we have one of our patrons who hasn't checked in for a while but he's here now super fan timothy has a question
0: timothy timmy <laughs> i don't know if he goes by timmy but it's a American television joke. <laughs> uh,
1: there's a show on HBO called The Life and Times of Tim. Have you ever seen it?
0: Is it about Tim, or Timothy, our super fan?
1: It, it is not. It's a, but it's a very funny show.
0: I'd like to get inside Timothy's brain sometimes. Oh. He has great questions.
1: <laughs> he does. All right, here's the question now. Hey, Beauty Brains, did you miss me? Uh, yes, Timothy, we did miss you. We
0: did. I'm, yeah.
1: I'm wondering about regulations around body products versus facial products. For example, with the key ingredients like retinol, glycolic acid, etc., are there different percentages allowed for body products as opposed to facial products? I think people assume that an exfoliating body product is stronger because it's for the body, but I was thinking that from a toxicological standpoint, the body has a higher surface area, so the percentages might actually be lower. Is this correct or does it not matter? Timothy, I think we kind of talked about this in previous shows before.
0: Well, we've talked about people wanting to use facial products on their body and body right. products on their face. We've talked exactly. about that. And this is we a did. bit in along the lines of that. Right. So let's take an example of an ingredient like niacinamide. Instead uh-huh. of a whole formulation, we're just going to look at one ingredient. And... We basically, when we're formulating with niacinamide, we have to take into account uh, the type of product uh, that it is going in, meaning the format. Is it a serum? Is it a lotion? Where it's specifically going, because different parts of the body do have different rates of dermal absorption, and uh, how much of the body it's going to be applied on. So in the uh, case of a facial product... If you have a face serum and it's just going to be applied on literally your face, that's a smaller area than face and neck, which is a larger area. And that's different from your feet, which might have technically the same surface area, but maybe a lower rate of dermal absorption. So we have to take into account all those things. So a lot of it does have to do with the amount of skin you're putting it on. But anyway, all of this stuff goes into a calculation based on your body weight. A child is going to have a different size face than an adult. So all this stuff is taken into consideration and a a toxicologist will calculate basically how much product you can put on how much skin and where you can put it on what size person. And that determines the use level based on an average person.
1: Yeah, the rules are really... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the rules are really about, uh, you know, not whether it's going to the face or the body. Um, It's really, like you said, about the amount uh, you're putting on the surface area. So if you only put in like, you know, two grams of product on your face, you're only going to absorb so much of an ingredient. Whereas two grams on your body... uh, you know, you need a lot more than that. So you're going to use, I don't know, 50 grams on your whole body. So Mm -hmm. to figure out how much you would get exposed to, you would just add up all of that exposure. And so really it's not about the wear, although, you know, the face will absorb maybe a different rate than different parts of the body. But, uh, you know, I think the assumption is that, the more important thing is the amount you're exposed to rather than the rate of exposure. Again, you're looking at totals. I think you, when you put it on, you assume that all of the stuff that you put on would get into the body because we're always uh, overestimating the amount of exposure, right? Just so we don't miss any of the potential hazards and and then you also multiply it from there but I, it's kind of like you know watching your total caffeine intake like from coffee and soda it's, it's like you're not injecting it but it's you know how many cups do you drink in a day and that that counts to your total exposure so uh, I, there aren't specific regulations talking about how much of an ingredient you can use on your face versus the rest of your body in general Now, around the eye area, there might be some specific regulations about chemicals you're allowed to use and not allowed to use. But if it's not specifically for your eye area, uh, I think all the same levels apply, whether it's face or body.
0: Exactly. So when we're talking about niacinamide and their toxicologist is going to calculate the margin of safety, they take a dose of the material so they take a dose of niacinamide where they know that there's no observed adverse effects given and that's called the no observed adverse effect level N-O-A-E-L and that's basically Mm. the greatest concentration of niacinamide where nothing bad is going to happen on the skin so they take that um, as the maximum dose and then they say well niacinamide has a dermal absorption of 14.4% so then they think okay okay A face um, is probably going to have 0.85 grams of this serum applied. And -hmm. when you take into account the no observed adverse effect level, the dermal absorption rate and the, you know, the surface area of the face uh, maximum 34% is the tolerable amount of niacinamide, a body lotion, you're going to apply a lot more products. So instead of, uh, 0.85 grams, maybe it's 8 grams. And so if you apply that once daily, again, this is based on the directions, there's a maximum 3.8% use level for niacinamide. Now, if your directions were to apply this body lotion three times daily, the maximum amount of niacinamide might be different because it's based on a daily exposure rate. Right. But this face serum, let's say your directions are to put it exactly around the eyes. Well... Then you need an ocular irritation study and the niacinamide amount might actually be a whole lot lower based on the clinical data available about the safety of niacinamide. So there's lots of stuff to be taken into consideration, but that's the long of it.
1: That the is, long the, and that short. is <laughs> the short is, no, there's no difference. The long you just heard. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not no difference. You can't really or shouldn't really put something that's meant for the body on the face because, again, the that surface area and dermal absorption and usage instructions has been taken into consideration to determine the dose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. (laughs) All right. You know, I agree that we should move on to the next question too.
0: This next question comes to us from Christina. I seriously need your expertise and knowledge on this one because I tried to desperately find an answer in the past weeks and it seems mission impossible. What skincare products should be avoided in the same routine when using hypochlorous acids? A few companies are now selling pH balance, hypochlorous acid sprays and lotions, apparent miracle cure help for eczema, rosacea, Ah. acne, but what can be used with it in order not to inactivate the other compounds, retinoids, BHAs, peptides. Thank you. Much love, Christina.
1: You know, this is the second question we got about hypochlorous acid recently. We talked a little bit about it on episode 292, but is that is this like the hot ingredient for 2023 or something?
0: Yeah, I started hearing about it a few years ago in the chemist circles and now a yeah. couple brands have come out with these types of products. Uh, typically it's been used in surface treatment. It's approved as a disinfectant in surface treatments. Uh. But now people are using it in skincare. And I believe at Dr. Samantha Ellis, her line prequel, um, in conjunction with the Center Brands, just came out with this uh, huh. product using hyaluronic acid. So I'm presuming that's why we're getting some buzz about it.
1: Yeah, you know that that claim pH balanced. It always rubs me in the wrong way because what does that even mean? pH balanced? Like I, it's, it's the marketing so vague, person right? that came
0: up with that. The marketing person that came up with that is a right. genius. Right, everyone uses it now.
1: So. All right, everyone uses it and it means nothing. Like, pH. Can we balance. find so, like, out
0: who came up with that? Which marketer came up <laughs> with that slogan?
1: Good, because it's like okay, you put this ingredient in water and it has a certain pH, and boom, it's balanced. <laughs> I don't know. Is that what the, is that what it means? Like, uh, okay, I well, that's, that's not. Yeah. That's only a side. Let's talk about the question here. So when you're using skincare products that contain hypochlorous acid, you got to be mindful about the other products that you're putting in your routine. It, it, it makes sense too, because this is a, a kind of a reactive ingredient. It's an antimicrobial and it can have potential benefits for, you know, treating the uh, conditions talked about, eczema, rosacea, acne, Although I will say these, it's not an OTC, like it's not in the acne monograph, so this would be off-label uh, ingredient. It's not; it wouldn't be a yeah, traditional brands, active uh, acne ingredient.
0: Brands would need to be careful if they're using this ingredient about what kind of claims they're making, for sure.
1: Yeah, but as far as its effectiveness goes, you asked about retinoids. Now, retinoids. You know, they're pretty reactive, powerful ingredients, anti-aging, anti-acne. There isn't really specific evidence that suggests there's a direct negative impact. But since retinoids can be irritating to some people's skins, you know, you might want to space them out if you're using the products together. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would say if you're using this product, you could try a retinoid and then observe your skin if you have a reaction uh, by using them at the same time, then, you know, don't do that. But a lot of people won't have that <laughs> reaction, right? <laughs> I think that's a, often the advice, right? Try it, and if it if it's some bad reaction, don't do not do that. Oh, gosh. Now, the beta-hydroxy acids, like your salicylic acid, that's an uh, exfoliator, uh, kind of like retinoids are exfoliators, too. And so there might be some increased risk of skin irritation in the same way uh, as retinoids. Uh, So again, I would have the same advice. like You can test it using them together and see if you have a problem. Uh, If not, then go do it.
0: Along with BHAs, I probably would include the exfoliating alpha hydroxy acids, like your glycolic, your uh, gluconolactone, your lactic. Yeah, anything that's going to really quickly strip skin away, uh, you just probably would want to be cautious and not mix them on the same time.
1: Yeah. And then finally, there are the peptides. Now, peptides are, you know, I mean, I, I personally think peptides don't really do much, but <laughs> I'm in the minority <laughs> of that. So. so, but they would be affecting skin in a different way. And so I, I don't think there would be much interaction between like a hypochlorous acid product and a peptide. Although I could imagine if the peptides could get a bit denatured by something like hypochlorous acid, it might make them less effective, but less effective than not effective is not much different, right? So I know.
0: Yeah, I would say it depends likely on the pH of the product being used. Yeah. Generally the hypochlorous acid sprays are, you know, not super acidic, you know, around four to five, something like that. But some proteins may not like that pH range. So I think it really just depends on what the peptide is and if yeah. it's allowed to be used in that range. Now, hopefully the chemist who has formulated the product with the hypochlorous acid, maybe they want to put a peptide in it. They probably did their homework, so you could be assured. Well, hopefully they did their homework. Uh, You can be (laughs) assured that that would be okay. Uh, But mixing them on skin, again, as Perry said, observe your skin, see how it's reacting, and if it's irritated, don't
1: use it. Yeah, and introduce products slow. You don't want to introduce like five new products all at the same time, and, and then if you have a reaction, it's... Uh, It's best to, like, if you have one product, then add one more and see how your skin is. And if you want to add another product, add it. So do it more sequentially and let your skin sort of get used to it.
0: Well, let's move on to our next question.
1: All right. Our fourth question comes to us from Julia. says, Hi, Beauty Brains. I'd love to get your take on the following. I usually get my hair highlighted blonde in a salon, but during the pandemic, I had tried the John Frieda Sheer Blonde. Go blonder shampoo in an attempt to make my roots lighter. It did work to some extent. My natural hair got noticeably lighter. However, when I went back to my regular hairstylist to get those fresh highlights, she refused to color my hair as I had used this product. Ooh, (laughs) shame. for shame. In fact, she's told me that there is a risk that it might make my hair fall off if the hydrogen peroxide is applied. So my question is, is there any good reason not to color hair when having used this or some other gradual lightening hair product? And more generally, are the at-home hair products that may interfere with or damage my hair if it's combined with professional hair coloring? Love your podcast and all the hard work that you do to help us clueless consumers out.
0: Oh, thanks, Julia.
1: Valerie, you happen to be one of the country's foremost experts in hair color. I'm sure you have some thoughts on this.
0: Well, I wish you guys could see me because my cheeks are flushed. When I heard that that stylist refused to do her hair, that is so absurd. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Let Let me break it down to everyone. And if you've heard the show before maybe you sense my my rant tone right now where I just get really, you know, I'm stepping on my soapbox here. Sure, rant away. My soapbox. <laughs> the chemicals used to make professional color. And by the way, I used to work for a salon professional brand. I felt like some people probably hated it when I would say this, but the chemicals I used at that company are the same chemicals that a John Frieda or another home hair color company are using. Right. Same chemicals, same chemistry. There's not a superior grade. We're all using the same chemicals to process hair in the same way. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing in the John Frieda Sheer Blonde Go Blonder shampoo that would make someone's hair fall off or break if hydrogen peroxide were applied. If anything the bleach the stylist is using would make this lady's hair fall off it has nothing to do with the shampoo right? right so i just don't like that you were shunned for choosing an alternative color option i don't like that
1: yeah absolutely that's you, you should you should people shouldn't be shamed for what they do their hair
0: <laughs> right and if the stylist were good she would know how to work in that situation well first she would know not to shame you But secondly, (laughs) she would know how to handle your hair in this actually is a a non... I was going to say situation, but it's a non-situation. Right, it's not. So home hair color, as I mentioned, uses the exact same chemistry. The the real reason salon professionals don't like it, um, they think it's due to the chemical composition of home hair color. But I think that's actually very unfair because, again, it's the same chemistry as professional products. Yeah. When you color your hair at home, you take the color, put it in a bottle. You add the developer. You shake it up so it intermixes. And what do you do? You apply it to your roots, and then you put it on the rest of your hair. We call right. this a global color application. You're putting it everywhere. It's one bottle. You're not intermixing colors. You're not doing balayage or low lights and highlights. Not usually, right? It, not it's on generally purpose, anyway. A war- no, a solid global application.
1: No, I mean, people might accidentally people might accidentally, when putting it on their hair, not get all the spots. <laughs> so that is one oh, of the... Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then it looks like violage or whatever. Oops. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. So
0: the, the challenge with home hair color is it generally is combined with monoethanolamine because mm-hmm. we want to keep the ammonia content low when you're at home and not, um, you know, make you say, oh, wow, this color stinky. Uh, monoethanolamine stays in the hair fiber. So the problem with home hair color and even salon professional color that contains MEA as well, is the second time you go to color over the old MEA, you'll get a denser deposit because the MEA is still in the hair. Again, you're not thinking, oh, let me only do the little bit of regrowth that I had. You're just plopping it on your hair because you're at home. So then it gets inkier and heavier looking. And then you'll say, you know what? My color's too dark. I want to go get it lightened out. A stylist will try to lighten it out, but the color is so in there and the MEA is creating this perpetual alkaline environment, the stylist will have a very hard time getting the color out of your hair. And they'll say, wow, this home hair color, it must be all the metals that they use or it must be all this. But really it's just, honestly, it's the technique. So I would say the challenge with home hair color is it's the technique. And so hopefully if you're a stylist, salon professional, color expert listening to this, um, you know what to do. You know how to help transition this guest to the look that they're looking for and help them get out of the situation. Otherwise, um, you know, our poor Julia here is not going to have anywhere to go. So yeah. in going to the questions, I'll climb off my soapbox now. <laughs> is there any good reason not to color hair when having used um, this? A no. gradual lighting product. Nope.
1: Like, yeah. I actually do those those shampoo, gradual, lightening products really even do much? I think most of it's just kind of washed off, right? But maybe some of yeah, it's left not behind. The,
0: uh, well, some, some of them contain um, like hydrogen peroxide and right. that kind of stuff. And I would say those do, um, but generally, no. You need the product to be left on the hair for some right. time. Maybe it exactly. um, appears brighter because it has some um, acid dyes in it, maybe. Yeah. Um, but... There's no reason chemically not to color your hair after you've used a gradual hair lightening product. Now, your hair may have some damage and you may want to care for the damage with conditioning products, with leave-in treatments, that sort of thing. But there's no chemical future interaction that's going to happen, especially with a rinse-off shampoo. Right. Next question. Are there any at-home hair products that may interfere or damage my hair if combined with professional hair coloring? Great question. My answer is still no. However, please note this. If you are someone who uses uh, thermal tools, blow dryers, curling irons, flat irons, other irons, pressing irons, I don't care what it is. If you color your hair, if you lighten your hair with bleach, especially a high volume bleach, like a 30 or 40 volume developer, which in Europe is a 9% or 12% hydrogen peroxide. If you do that to your hair and then you go home and thermal style it, it's the worst thing you could do for your hair. Yeah. So I would say it's not a product per se, but it's an action you're doing that would interfere with your color. And by the way, vice versa, you know, if you if you love thermal styling your hair, the color's just going to damage your hair worse. So it's really the combination. So what you should be doing is using products with thermal protection. Anytime you're putting any heat source on your hair, especially if you're coloring or lightening your hair color
1: yeah although i imagine there are worse things you could do to your hair like just put relaxer on and then don't take it off <laughs> that would be pretty bad <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a free straightening and haircut service
1: right exactly or uh you know leaving the thioglycolic acid on to bioglycolate <laughs> <laughs> oh on yeah a oh, my too gosh. long yeah make yeah. your hair smell good. or
0: double perming so. your hair is pretty bad for it too
1: but yeah bleaching and then heat styling (laughs) probably probably right up there with bad
0: it's pretty bad yeah yeah so my rant is over thank you to everyone for listening i apologize if you were annoyed but these are the factoids
1: (laughs) they are all right we have time for one more question
0: well our last question comes to us from a
1: patron katie hey beauty brains thanks for your show i wish i could add up all the money it has saved me Now, would using salicylic acid shampoo daily cause any harm either to hair or scalp? I wash my hair daily due to my lifestyle, but tend to get bumps, irritated scalp, etc. when using most shampoos. My scalp is happy right now with the alternating the Neutrogena 1.8% salicylic acid shampoo and an Aquaphor baby wash shampoo. I do this Because a provider at a derm clinic cautioned against daily use of uh, salicylic acid on hair. Not sure why. But is there any reason to be concerned about this? Thanks again. All right. Salicylic acid on hair. Yeah. It's great for scalp
0: because even at a neutral pH, salicylic acid has some exfoliating action.
1: And at a pH balanced (laughs) level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even at pH seven, when it's balanced to seven right. or eight, right. um, it even has some exfoliating action. And this is great if you have uh, overgrowth of skin from for fungal reasons. So if you have uh, if you have dandruff, if you have um, oil overproduction, because salicylic acid goes into the pores, helps reduce inflammation, helps re- uh, modulate sebum production. It's great for all these things. And what's nice about it is you have a short amount of contact time it's a pretty decent dose and you're actually mechanically scrubbing it into your yeah. scalp and then it's rinsed away so that's what i really love about salicylic acid shampoos
1: it is actually an OTC active ingredient here in the united states so it you know it works for dandruff it
0: has a has a lot of data behind it it's approved we understand the side effects so I would say this is a good shampoo to use. Now, what about using it daily? What do you think? Well, buddy? as
1: far as using it every day, it's you know it's kind of like using any potent ingredient. You know, moderation and keep an eye on your hair. You know, for some folks, using salicylic every day uh, is just going to be fine. You know, I I bet I could do it. I, <laughs> I probably wouldn't notice much. Mr.
0: Cosmetic Chemist does it. Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially at a concentration of you know under two percent, but. You know, for other people, it might be a bit much, and that could lead to some dryness or irritation on your scalp over time. So, it's just one of those things you've gotta you gotta try it. Now, as far as what the dermatologist told you, uh, you know, they might be giving you you know the over cautious advice as as people will do. So, you know that that way that gets you to use less, and the less you use, really, that does reduce the probability that you might get irritation. But it's also possible that you could use it every day and not have any problems with irritation.
0: It's just like medicine, right? Some people get the side effects. Some don't. Some people only get the rarest side effects or they get them really extreme. So it's, I think, a unique individual to individual type thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, keep an eye on how your scalp is doing, but I'd say your, your system is working for you. I would say keep doing it unless something changes.
0: Yeah. And especially since your scalp is happy right now with that alternating, I wouldn't uh, disrupt that balance. If you're in a good spot, keep it. Speaking of good spot, I think that's time for us to go. I hear the music.
1: I do too. And you know, the music is not as loud as it used to be. Thanks thanks to the advice from one listener last time.
0: Well, we'll have to see if they've been happy with it. Uh, Speaking of that, thanks for listening, everyone.
1: Hey, if you get a chance, can you go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show and leave us a review, especially if you're a fan. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer.
0: Speaking of questions, if you have one, we love other voices on the show, just not those AI voices that Perry loves so much. So please help me out and the other listeners who are anti-AI. Record your question on your smartphone. Super easy to do. Email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com.
1: And the Beauty Brains are on Patreon. You might have noticed or didn't notice any commercials in this show because we don't have commercials, but we do have bills. And if you want to help support the show and keep the show going... Uh, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe at any level. We appreciate all of our patrons. And one of the bonuses you get is you get a transcript of the show. Another bonus you get is you get your questions answered at a much higher priority than everybody else.
0: Also, don't forget to follow us on our various inactive social media accounts (laughs) on Instagram. (laughs) We promise we'll be better in the new year, but this is not about New Year's resolutions right now follow us on instagram at the beauty brains 2018 on x we're at the beauty brains we have a facebook page and a tiktok
1: yeah and boy we're, we're just publishing up a storm <laughs> we do we do actually respond if you uh, send us a message so <laughs> there is that
0: yeah maybe well maybe. thanks again for listening everyone and remember be brainy about
1: your beauty thanks everyone It ends.